whenever I study scripture, especially when I'm preparing for a sermon, there are two main questions I want to have answered. There are some other questions that I ask as well, but two main questions, a what question and a how question. What and how? I want to know what the text is saying, and then I want to know how we as believers are to live in light of what the text is saying, okay? What and how. Now, there are passages of Scripture where the what is more clearly defined than the how. There are passages of Scripture that are just soaked thick with doctrine, teaching us who God is, how He relates to us, the work He has accomplished for us in redeeming us. And there are other passages that are light on doctrine and heavy on application, saying this is how you're to live, this is how you're not to live. Oftentimes, what you find in Scripture is that books within this book, they have a certain amount of both the what and the how. This is why it is important to study books of the Bible in their entirety so that when you reach the practical portion of a book in Scripture, you can read that in light of the theological so that you will make the proper application based upon who God is, right? Uh, we saw this when we studied through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians divides nicely in a half. In chapters 1 through 3, it's soaked thick with doctrine. Paul is teaching us who we are in Christ and what Christ has done to redeem us. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, you have the great swing verse. Therefore, in light of who Christ is, in light of what he's done in saving you, this is how you're to live. And he goes on to just give a number of commands, Paul does, throughout the rest of that book. Hebrews is written in this way as well. For the first nine and a half chapters of this book, the author of Hebrews has been giving us a Christology lesson. And that word Christology is just a fancy 25-cent word that means the study of Christ. The author of Hebrews, in the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews, he explains how and why Jesus is greater. And he makes the case that he is greater than prophets and angels and Moses and Joshua and Levi and Aaron. He is our true and better priest from a superior order of priests who has accomplished a superior work. He has ushered in a superior covenant. He is our supreme king priest who has accomplished our salvation and has opened the way back up for us to be made right, for, for condemned sinners to become forgiven saints and be restored to God forever. And after all of that, after laying out all of those lofty and, and glorious truths about Christ's great person and work, the author of Hebrews transitions in the middle of chapter 10 and says, therefore, here's how you are to live. So he takes us, the author of Hebrews takes us from the mountaintop of those great and lofty and glorious truths to the blacktop streets of where we live to show us how we are to live in light of these truths. And we're going to see that this morning 
in Hebrews chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, turn there now. Continuing our series through Hebrews, we're in the last chapter. If you can believe it, we have already seen a number of passages in Hebrews filled with application. And the text we are going to look at this morning is heavily saturated with it. In fact, we're going to see uh, the, the, all of chapter 13 is filled with great application. The writer of Hebrews is saying, in light of Jesus being better, being supreme, here is how you are to live. The first way we are to respond to the fact that Christ is supreme from Hebrews 13, 1 through 6 is, we are to love others. That's the first point. We are to love others. And if you're wondering who the others are that we are to love, he tells us, first, love the saints. That's the first sub-point there. Love the saints. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 1. He says, let brotherly love continue. In verse 1, believers are called to love their brothers. That is the kind of love that is to continue. That's the love that is to remain. The Greek word for brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. Some of you, I bet, knew that, right? Delphia is brother and phileo is love. Now, I know some of you have older brothers and sisters or younger siblings who are coming to mind, and you're thinking love is not really the first thing that comes to mind when I think about that relationship. Maybe you grew up fussing and fighting. Maybe, maybe you're even estranged from them today. There are two things that I have to say to you if that is the case. One, if there is anything in your power, believers, to fix the relationship, you need to strive to have a good relationship with your family. As Paul says, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all that includes family if possible. But second, the idea of a kid-sister or brother relationship or a relationship with an older sibling is not what the author is getting at here. Remember, context is king, all right? He is speaking to Jewish believers here, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not talking about viewing others and treating them like a pesty sibling. Instead, he's talking about loving those who are in God's family, those who are in Christ. Listen, true followers of Christ should have a much easier time getting along than a pair of unregenerate siblings. Do you realize that? If you have difficulty getting along with people in the church, there is something amiss in you or in them or in both of you that needs to be addressed. Believers, our faith in Christ and our maturing relationship with Him should make our relationships with each other strong and healthy. If this relationship is where it needs to be vertically, our relationships with one another need to be where it, in a good place horizontally. You with me? That's what the writer of Hebrews is calling for here when he says, let brotherly love continue. Believers, how are you doing in this area of your life? How well are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? 
people should see that Christ is Lord and that He is supreme in the way you love your Christian brothers and sisters. I've said this in the past, it's still true. We have an awesome opportunity to shine the light of the gospel in this community simply by the way in which we treat one another in the church. Do you realize that? When people see people from all different walks of life come together in fellowship and worship and they see us loving people different from us in every way and they hear that what binds us is Christ in us, they see God's gospel on display. They do. Remember what Jesus said about it? John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what the writer of Hebrews is calling for in Hebrews 13, 1. He says, because Jesus is supreme, you should show it by letting brotherly love continue, loving others your brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice who else is included in the others category. Not only does he say you should love the saints, but you should also love strangers as well. You should be loving those you don't know. Now, there are, of course, safety measures to take here, right, believers? He's not saying that. Uh, think about the context again. The author of Hebrews is just saying that the love that we show to believers in this church extend beyond the church walls into the community. It should. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this verse, I believe, has been abused a little bit. Uh, you'll often hear stories, you know, about somebody who's broken down on the side of the road with the flat in the middle of the night. Somebody will come out of nowhere and change their tire and then drive off into the night, and they assume that must have been an angel. You know, I've heard that story uh, told in, in many different uh, settings by different people at different times. Now, I'm not here to refute those stories, but it's important to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, okay? Context is king. Remember, he is writing to Jewish Christians who were well-versed in the Old Testament. He is encouraging them to be hospitable to strangers and love those outside of their fellowship of believers, and he is giving them motivation for doing so, explaining to them, you never know who might approach you. He says, some have entertained angels. Who would he be talking about there? Well, Abraham, right? Remember, Abraham is visited by three individuals. One is the Lord, two is angels. He addresses one as the Lord. Lot is approached by two angels later on, and they show hospitality to these angels, and they, they figure out who they are as the story goes on. The men of Sodom do not treat these individuals appropriately, and they pay the price for it. Remember the woman with the sick son who entertained God's prophet Elijah? She was she was hospitable to him, and God used him to heal her son. Remember Rahab, 
who protected God's spies, is spared along with her family from God's judgment when his people take Jericho. There are lots of examples of this in Scripture. The author of of Hebrews is, is saying we should be this way. We should be hospitable in this way, much more loving and hospitable than we have a tendency to be. And not just in our homes, but in public when we're out to eat and to visitors who come to this church. I mean, believers, think about all of those in this church family who are at one time strangers to you who you are now thankful for who've been an extremely glorious wonderful blessing to you and your family individually and to the church family as well that's the point another point of application that could be made here as well from point two is that you never know how your love and hospitality will impact the life of that non-believer outside of the church until you show it, right? Who knows what God's going to do in that person's heart and life? Boy, there were uh, believers who were hospitable to me before I was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who opened their home to me and ministered to me and shared Christ with me i'm sure many of you have stories like that as well they may go on to be faithful christ followers who in turn lead others don't squander those opportunities don't neglect to show love and hospitality to strangers so god's people are called to to love strangers showing hospitality one last point under the loving others category the author of hebrews singles out a third group here in addition to loving the saints and loving strangers, he calls for his Jewish Christian audience to also and especially love the suffering. Love the suffering. Love those suffering for the cause of Christ. Look at verse 3. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We, we have talked about the fact that at this time, these believers that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, they had endured persecution, not to the, to the extent of shedding their own blood, but they had been severely persecuted. Some of them had been imprisoned, their pop property had been, had been plundered, and the author of Hebrews calls for them to not forget about others who are suffering for Christ's sake. He calls for them to remember those who are in prison, those suffering for godliness, remember them as if you're sitting right next to them, because you could be if this situation were, were different. He says, remember those who are being mistreated for the gospel. They are your brothers in Christ. Do not forget them. Instead, love and serve them. Believers, we have a wonderful opportunity to apply this passage here by getting involved in the work that God is doing through the missionaries we support. We've got two guys on the field right now, one in Central America and, and, and another in Africa. Think about, in particular, the Fredheims in, in Nigeria. Brent has done an excellent job letting us know about the work that is taking place there with our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. They are being persecuted terribly, right? But their faith is remaining strong. But, but he, along with Peter, Brent, along with Peter, and the believers there... 
asking for our help, there are opportunities for you to love those who are suffering by, by learning about the work God is doing through them, praying for the work, giving to support the work, and praying for opportunities to go and serve alongside Brent, if it be God's will. If Christ is supreme, we should respond by loving others. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ by spending time with them in worship and fellowship in and through the ministries of the church, by loving and serving those outside the church, showing hospitality to them, and especially loving and serving those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. By staying up on their situation, learning more about the work there, being faithful to pray for the work, being faithful to give to support the work, and going to serve if it be God's will. God's people, followers of Jesus, love others. They also honor marriage. They honor marriage. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Here's what he's saying. He is saying that marriage should be held in high honor by all people. Why? Because it's from God. It's a gift from God. His idea, his institution, he established it in the very beginning. This relationship was to be between one man and one woman faithfully forever. It's from God. It's not our idea. It's not society's idea. It is God's institution. Therefore, God expects us to hold marriage up in the right way, in the way he established it, and honor that institution. There are people always today scratching their heads in the news about why Christians get all up in arms about the institution of marriage. It's because of passages like this. God has clearly established in his word what the marriage relationship is to look like. And he says the way we honor his institution is by upholding this institution in the way he established it initially and having a high view of it. Al Mohler said this in his commentary on Hebrews. Look at this quote on the screen. Christians should give public visible honor and private personal honor to marriage as the monogamous union of a man and a woman. Since the fall, the marriage relationship has suffered. I don't have to tell many of you that, right? But that's a major problem. You know why? Because it influences and affects things in our society. I've told you this before, but it's, it's important that we understand this. The state of things in society is a direct reflection of the state of things in the church true the state of things in the church is a direct reflection of the state of things in the homes of believers the state of things in the homes of believers is a reflection of the state of things in the marriage between believers so you could say it in this way so goes the marriage so goes the home, so goes the church, so goes society. That's why God puts such a high priority on marriage. But we see here in 
Hebrews 13, the marriage relationship was suffering in the first century as well. And we don't have to guess what the issue is. The author tells us. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Some were struggling to remain pure and faithful in the marriage relationship. They were struggling with sexual immorality and some were guilty of adultery. Now notice those two words are separated, okay? I don't think I have to tell you what what, uh, uh, adultery is here when he talks about the adulteress, but what is that word translated sexually immoral? Well, it is the Greek word porneia. It, it's, it's where we get our word pornography, but it's a very general word that serves sort of like a catch-all that covers a broad range of sexual activity that one engages in apart from their spouse, outside the marriage relationship, and it can also include perverse sexual acts done within as well. And I don't think I need to go through a list of all those activities. You should know, believers, what does and what does not honor God. God gives us a very general word here on this so that we would not get out our checklists and mark down all the exceptions. We love to be the exception, but oftentimes we are not. Sexual immorality is coupled with adultery here as defiling the marriage bed. This is a radical statement to make in our oversexed culture we live in today, but it's, it's biblical. Now, it's always important when bringing this topic up to remind you that Scripture recognizes sex within the marriage relationship as being a wonderful thing worthy of celebrating. If we were to make a checklist of the ingredients to a happy and healthy marriage, sex between husband and wife in the marriage relationship would most certainly be on the list. I've heard it illustrated in this way. I like this. Think about a fire. In a fireplace can be a wonderful thing, right? How many of y'all like a roaring fire in the fireplace on those rare cold days in East Texas. We don't get very many of them. But it's nice, right? In the fire, it's a good thing. But a fire outside of the fireplace, let's say in the kitchen, is disastrous. In a fireplace, it can serve to enhance the function of the house by warming it during the winter months. But in the kitchen, it could destroy a home. Same is true when it comes to sex within the marriage relationship, it's good and contributes to the overall health of the relationship. Outside the marriage relationship, however, devastating. Devastating. It can destroy a marriage, family. It can and has ruined lives and also hurt the church. Notice also that God's judgment is coming for the adulterous and the sexually immoral. The author of Hebrews says very clearly, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Get this, because God is the one who gave the institution for marriage and rules the rules that accompany it. He is the one who will bring judgment to the sexually deviant, those who defile the marriage bed and destroy this precious institution that he has put in place. And by the way, single people in here, don't tune me out. You are called to honor the marriage bed as well, the marriage relationship. 
All means all here. This verse doesn't just apply to married folks. Single people, you honor it by remaining pure until marriage. That means abstinence. To you young folks, that's, that's how you apply God's words here. Remaining pure till marriage. And believe it or not, I've encountered this as well. There are some older single folks today who've been married before maybe in other, other circumstances as well. They, they reason in this way. I've heard this. You hit a certain age and you're somehow exempt from this. They believe that. Show me in Scripture where that's the case. You're not going to find it. Married folks remain faithful to each other by fleeing sexual immorality in every situation that could put you in danger. Abide in Christ. Cling close to your spouse. Listen, you cannot have a high view of Jesus and a low view of marriage. You can't. If you believe Jesus is supreme, you will necessarily have a high view of marriage as well. You know why? Because he has a high view of marriage. So should you if you're living life under his lordship and authority. The third way we see in this passage to respond to the fact that Jesus is supreme is by being content. Be content. If Jesus is supreme, we should respond in this way. Look at verses 5 through 6 of Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. It's pretty clear what the writer is saying here. He is saying... Followers of Christ should keep their lives free from the love of money. They should not be mastered by it. They should be content with what they have. Now, this flies in the face of the way in which we naturally are. We always want more, don't we? A little more money, nicer vehicle, nicer home, nicer clothes. Our tendency is to not be content. It was the oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest Americans in modern day, who when asked how much money is enough, you know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That, that's right, isn't it? It's how we are. God tells us we are this way in his word, but he also tells us through Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. We, we truly believe if we have just a little bit more money, then we would have a bit more security and we would have satisfaction long term. Solomon says no. And he had more money than any of us or anybody we know. More power, more wealth, more esteem, more everything. Solomon had it all. Let me give you a more modern day example. I've shared this with you before. Jim Carrey was quoted recently. He's not a believer, but listen to what he said. He said, I wish everyone could have wealth and fame so they would know it's not the answer. That's from Jim Carrey. So for those of y'all saying, well, what does Graham know? He didn't have any money. Well, I'm telling you about guys who do and showing you from Scripture. 
Solomon says, the more money we have, the more problems we have. So that more money, more problems came from Solomon. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5, 11 through 14. I've got it up on the screen. Look at it. Solomon says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. I love this. He's saying the more money you have, the more long-lost relatives show up that you didn't know you have and friends you didn't know you have who want a piece of the pie. It also affects the way you sleep. Solomon says in verse 12, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The man with little sleeps well, the wealthy not so much. I love this book. Man, I love preaching through it. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept back by their owner to his hurt. He's talking about those worried about where their money is going. They respond by hoarding away their wealth, thinking that will make them happier, but Solomon assures us it will not. I often picture Ebenezer Scrooge when I read this passage of Scripture. You remember him? He had all the money anybody could ever want, but he wouldn't even buy coal for the fire in his place of business. And Dickens describes him as a wealthy, but a miserly and miserable old sinner. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying as well, along with so many other writers in Scripture. That's what he's getting at when he warns about the love of money. Now get this, it's not wrong to have money. It's wrong to be mastered by it. How many of you have heard it said, money makes a lousy lover? It's true. Or how about this one? Makes a good servant, but a bad master. So true. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from it, from the love of money. Be content with what God has given you. Now again, easier said than done because we struggle with being content. We want, we want, we want, we want, we want. What we fail to see is all we already have. David Platt, in his book, Radical, says this, look at this quote up on the screen. He says, we are an affluent people living in an impoverished world. If we make only $10,000 a year, we are wealthier than 84% of people in the world. Do you know that? If we make $50,000 a year, we are wealthier than 99% of people in the world. And that's just the worldly riches we have. Charles Spurgeon reminds us believers of the spiritual riches we have. Look at this quote. I like it even better, much better. Look at Spurgeon's quote. To be content with what we have should be especially easy to us because we who are in Christ have so much to be thankful for. Because of him, the world is ours and the world's to come. Earth is our lodge and heaven our home. Listen, while this idea of contentment is foreign to us, think about this. Everything you have will one day, all the, the, the worldly riches that you have, it'll one day no longer be yours. It'll be taken away from you. Sometimes it's lost in this life. Look at the passage from Solomon again. Next slide here. Ecclesiastes 5, he says, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Sometimes that happens. It'll certainly be lost at death. Look at the next verse of Scripture on the next slide. Ecclesiastes 2.21. Solomon says, A person who has toiled 
with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else who did not toil for it. It's going to go to somebody else who's going to squander it. Didn't Solomon know that to be true? The kingdom was divided in the next generation after Solomon. This is also vanity and a great evil. We can't take it with us. It was a great theologian, George Strait. Yeah, I said that. I was expecting an amen in Texas, right? George Strait said this. He said, you don't bring nothing with you here and you can't take nothing back. I ain't never seen a hearse with a luggage rack. It's true, George. St. George, right? And at times, that money, it goes to someone else like Solomon says who didn't work for it and they blow it. You can't put your hope in something like that. Okay, Graham, then what? What's the alternative? Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The author of Hebrews made the exact same conclusion as Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Security and contentment in this life cannot be found in the material things of this world. They can be enjoyed for a time, but cannot be looked to and, and pursued and trusted and bringing happiness long term. Only living in a right relationship with God through His Son Jesus Christ can bring safety and security and peace and lasting joy that we are so desperately seeking. Why? Because the things of this world are fleeting. They're passing away, will one day be gone forever. God promises never to leave nor forsake his people. While money can be used to provide a sense of security, one might buy a home with security system, put a large fence around their home, put large guard dogs out front. You can buy the best health care money can buy. The odds are still in death's favor. If the Lord tarries, the odds are one and one. We're going to die someday. And that someday might be today. No amount of money can change that. But watch this. Only the Lord can help us in a way that removes fear from us no matter what. Only the Lord can give us victory in death because his son Jesus conquered death with death so that through him we might have life. Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again so that we who trust in him have life even though we die. Sting of death is removed in Christ. What a hope we have as believers. On God's side, there's nothing to fear, believers. In him, there is life eternal. There is security and peace and joy everlasting. Let me end with this. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure this morning? Where is it? Is it in Christ or is it in stuff? Are you seeking to be satisfied in the gifts or in the giver of those gifts? Are you captivated by creation or are you a worshiper of the creator? Important questions to answer you want to experience lasting enjoyment and satisfaction in this life, then you have to put the heavenly relationship before earthly riches. 
This is what God requires of us all. For money to be our servant, but for he himself to be our master. If you have not, I pray that you would forsake your sin today, forsake all earthly pursuits you have made that you're seeking apart from God that are first in your life and make him first by making his son Lord so that you can be forgiven of sin and restored to God and have life in Christ. If you've never made that decision, if you have not forsaken your sin and made Christ Lord, I pray you would today give your life up and over to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Let's pray.